Good morning. This is the last sermon as we're going through the book of James. And the book of James, as a quick recap, is basically James talking to the Jewish Christians, the early Jewish Christians, the Messianic Jews. And they had a lot of problems in their churches. And James spends quite a bit of time going through each kind of issue or problem that was in the churches, like gossip, the rich not looking after the poor and being selfish, and there's a whole list of things. At the end of the book, it's all about confession and making things right. So James has exposed all the sin in the first part of the book, and then at the end of the book, he tells you how to make it right. And you might have heard those verses, submit to the Lord, resist the devil, and... He will flee from you, right? Okay, that's in James. That's in James chapter 4. So James gives us the tools. James gives us the know-how to overcome sin. He tells us what the sin is, tells us what the effects of the sin is, which is destructive, and then he gives us the tools. Now, in chapter 5, one of the main tools that he gives us is confession. It's something that's kind of lacking in the church, I believe, is confession, because if we don't confess our sins to each other, then they're hidden in our heart and we are kind of really struggling all on our own and that's difficult. So what we're going to do is get them out there, be careful who you confess to, of course, with someone you trust, and then you can have that devil's tactic of shame and blame and, you know, you're no good, look at what you keep on doing. Well, if you've told someone else, then everybody knows and... That's gone, you see. And now you've got someone to pray for you and you can be healed. Your relationship with God can be healed. So last week we looked at why God wants us to come back to him. We looked at the heart of God, went through the Old Testament, and that was really awesome. This week is really practical. This week is how. The why last week was setting us up for this week. The why is really important. We need to have God's heart. God's heart towards us is that he really, really wants us to be in relationship with him. That's his desire, for us to be in relationship with him. That's why Jesus died on the cross, to bring us back into a relationship. So basically, this week, we're looking at how does that happen? What do we do? How does it work in practice? So if we don't understand God's heart, we can go through these steps and go through these principles, but it won't work because we're doing it with the wrong heart and the wrong attitude. We need to have God's heart as we do these things. I'll just pray. Father, give us wisdom today as we go through your word and learn about this very practical and probably neglected aspect of ministry, this whole idea of confession and church discipline. Help us to know how to do this wisely and effectively and in love. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Now, each week we've been repeating a memory verse, so we'll do that first. We'll do that now. It's James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, and this is like the two theme verses for the book of James. And so after we've been going through this for about 15 weeks now, most of us know it. <laughs> so James chapter 1, verses 2 to 4, it says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So, last week, as I said before, we looked at why God is so concerned about those who fall away. Why? It's very simple. <laughs> he loves them. Yeah, he loves us. And it's his heart's deepest desire to bring people back into relationship with him. And that's what motivated Jesus to die on the cross. So. I just want to go and have a look at something with Jesus' disciples. Early on, some of Jesus' disciples didn't understand God's heart. And look what they did in Luke chapter 9, verses 53 to 56. But the Samaritans did not receive Jesus because his face was set for the journey to Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, do you want us to command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, just as Elijah did? That's nice, isn't it? 
But he turned and rebuked them. Jesus turned and rebuked them and said, You do not know what manner of spirit you are of. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. So, there's two attitudes here. There's a critical, harsh attitude we can have towards people who are in sin, or we can have the heart of Jesus, where, yes, he had to walk away because they weren't willing to repent, but he loved them. His desire was to save them. So, we don't want to be like James and John, who were critical and condemning. We want to be like Jesus, who loved them and wanted to see them saved. Another aspect of this is it's a bit of revision from before too. If we don't understand God's heart ourselves, then we will be hesitant to confess our sins. I've heard people say things like this. If I went into a church, a fire would come down and consume me, or the walls would fall down on top of me, or I've blown it too badly this time, God will never take me back, or I've sinned way too many times for God to forgive me. Have you heard people say things like that? So. If you don't understand God's heart, then you'll have this wrong view of who God is and it'll make it very difficult for you to confess because you won't be expecting God to forgive you and accept you. you just be expecting to be rejected. And I love Romans 5 verse 20. I'm reading from the Amplified. But where sin increased and abounded, grace, God's unmerited or undeserved favor, has surpassed it and increased the more and superabounded. <laughs> So, God's grace superabounds. That's the whole idea. It abounds more and more. So, yeah, where there's lots of sin, there can be lots of sin, including in our own lives, but God's grace superabounds. It's greater than the sin. It's always greater. God will always forgive us. There is no sin that God is not able or unwilling to forgive. So what does stop us from receiving forgiveness? It's just our lack of willingness to confess and repent. That's it. So this week, I want to focus on how to restore people back into right relationship with God. And the Bible has specific instructions for different situations. So this is about equipping us and training us to effectively help others to return to right relationship with God. So we don't hurt ourselves or hurt them more than they're already hurt. So let's read James 5, 19-20. So, brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So we're going to break this down phrase by phrase. So the first phrase there is, brethren, if anyone among you. So the title here is, who needs help? Well, who is it? <laughs> All of us, yeah. Brethren, if anyone among you. So that's why I'm calling today's sermon Rescuing the Wandering Sheep. My heart here is to describe how to rescue the wandering sheep. That's God's heart. Because in the scriptures, sheep refer to the believers. They hang out together and are easily led astray or easily wander. Whereas the goats refer to unbelievers. Matthew 5, 31-46. quote from Spurgeon, he said, Read the verse, and you will see that it was that of a backslider from the visible church of God. The words, if any of you, must refer to a professed Christian. So, is there any such thing as a super-Christian who would ever fall into sin? <laughs> no. There's going to be times when we all wander away from God as we fall into sin. And this is when the others in the body come alongside to help those who have wandered away from God and are caught up in sin. A couple of encouraging verses are Proverbs 24.16 The godly may trip seven times, but they will get up again. But one disaster is enough to overthrow the wicked. So there's God's mercy. We may trip up seven times. We may trip up more than seven times, but God will always pick us up. 1 Corinthians 12.25-26 This makes for harmony among the members so that all the members care for each other. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it, and if one part is honoured, all the parts are glad. So when one person falls into sin, they stumble and they fall, drinking or drugs or you know, wrong relationship, whatever it might be, pride, gossip, 
it's the duty of the other people, the Christians around them, to come alongside and help them to come back, to turn them back to God. And that's what it means here. It's partly referring to this. If one part suffers, all the parts suffer with it. We go along and we help. So what is my responsibility? What is your responsibility as a member of the body of Christ? Well, if anyone, in verse 19, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, it's our job to turn them back. We are told here that it is our duty to confront people when they're caught up in sin. The rest of the body has a responsibility to look after and care for those who are tripped up. Just like parents have the responsibility to help their children when they are sick. But there's limits, and we have to look at boundaries and whether the person wants to be helped, but we'll look at that later. Now, wandering from the truth is the, the next subheading there. And verse 19, it says, wanders from the truth. And isn't this the truth? <laughs> I mean, who woke up one morning and said, I'm going to sin today. I'm purposely going to grieve the Holy Spirit, damage my relationships with my fellow saints, blaspheme God's holy name by my bad conduct and attitude, and make myself miserable. Now, what sin can I commit to make this happen? I mean, does anyone do that? No. So that's why it says wanders from the truth. We forget. We take our eyes off Jesus and we drift off the path. So why do you think a person pulls away from fellowship when they have turned away from God, when they are in sin. Have you thought about that? Why is it so hard to be in fellowship when you're in sin? Yeah, you feel guilty, yeah. So John Corson has a good answer. Because at the heart of every problem lies a problem of the heart. It all starts on the inside, yeah? I believe a person stops travelling with the body of Christ when a problem in his heart causes him to be uncomfortable in the presence of God's people. So, this is really helpful for me. When we're not walking with God ourselves, we feel shame and guilt, and these feelings are only magnified when we are around people who are walking with the Lord. We see what we're missing out on, and we know that we are in the wrong, and to avoid that extra guilt and pain because of our sin, we just avoid being around them. And we close up and become distant and become superficial, or might just disappear altogether. Now, what is God's way of restoring the lost sheep? Verse 19, it says, And someone turns him back. So, what does the shepherd do? He goes after the sheep and brings them back. We are God's hands and his feet, and we are to seek those wandering sheep and bring them back to the shepherd of their soul. Now, why would God use imperfect people like us for a task as important as this? Have you thought about that? Saul of Tarsus. You know, Paul the Apostle. But before he was Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus. Who converted him? God did. Jesus did. He knocked him off his horse. said, hey Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you? I'm Jesus. Oh, <laughs> whoops. So, God doesn't have to use us, but he chooses to. Most of the time. He uses us, humans, these imperfect people, to do his work, this really important work of turning people back to him. So, why would God do that? And I just want to point out that we bring glory to God when we do this. Think of a craftsman or an artist, and all they have is some old, worn-out pencils and stuff, and, and the materials are pretty you know, broken. And then he makes this wonderful masterpiece. And you go, how did he do that with those materials? He must be an awesome artist, yeah? Well, this is true with us. Or the craftsman could use a 3D printer, you know, robots and lasers and all this kind of new fancy stuff. And people look at the result and say, wow, those tools are amazing. Look what anyone can do with modern technology. You see that? So. When God uses weak and frail things to get things done, people go, it wasn't the instrument that God used that was responsible for the change. It was God who was responsible. Yeah. Second Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7, it says, 
But we have this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellence of the power may be of God and not of us. And in the New Living Translation that says, We now have this light shining in our hearts, but we ourselves are like fragile clay jars containing this great treasure. This makes it clear that our great power is from God, not from ourselves. So we're talking about the body of Christ growing into the image of Christ. This is the most beautiful work of art, the most beautiful uh, creation that we'll see on this earth is people individually and corporately growing to be like Christ. And when the world and people around see the change in us, they're not going to say, oh, well, aren't those people fantastic? No, they're going to say, those people, they're always failing, they're always stumbling, they're so weak. How do they get to change? How do they get to be like that? Well, it's God. So. If it's not about my ability, what is it about? It's my availability. Yeah, I just need to make myself available to God for God to use me. How do I make myself available? Well, as we've been going through James, we already know. We've already been taught. Confess your sins to one another. Submit to God and draw near to God. So if we cleanse ourselves from anything that is not pure, holy, good, right and true, then we become practically holy and available to be used in God's service. And this is really important when it comes to bringing people back to Christ who have wandered away. We can't do this if we're not practically in relationship with God. So just as a bit of background, we are all, as Christians, if you are saved and born again, positionally righteous, but we may not be Practically righteous because we may have unconfessed sin in our lives. We may not be walking with God with a clean heart, a pure heart, as you sung about before. So we need to be practically righteous. We need to have dealt with the sin in our own lives first before we help someone else. We'll come back to that. So 2 Timothy 2.21, if you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. Your life will be clean and you'll be ready for the master to use you for every good work. So. If I've made myself available, if I've confessed my sin, if I'm ready to be used by the Master, then my hands become God's hands, my feet become God's feet, my words become God's words, my ears become God's ears, and my eyes become God's eyes, and my heart becomes God's heart. You see, I do and think and say the things that God does. Like Jesus, he said, I only do what I see the Father doing. And we have his heart of compassion. So, how do we keep ourselves pure and therefore fit and available for the master to use? Well, the next verse tells us. It says, if you keep yourself pure, you will be a special utensil for honorable use. So it's if, yeah? Your life will be clean and you'll be ready for the master to use you for every good work. The next verse tells us how. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Instead, pursue righteous living, faithfulness, love and peace. And enjoy the companionship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. So there's three things here that we can use as a bit of a model, something to remember. Run, pursue, and enjoy. Run from anything that stimulates youthful lust. Think of sin as a tiger snake. Are you going to play with it? No, you're going to want to kill it or you want to run away from it, yeah? So don't go near sin. Don't be deceived. Satan comes to kill, steal, and destroy. John 10.10 If you play with a snake, you will get bitten. Now, two, pursue. Pursue. Pursue righteous living. Faithfulness, love, and peace. So pursue literally means to chase down, to hunt, to run after, and seek after the truth and to obey it. So this is what we have to actively do. This is a choice that we have to do. We have to pursue Something You guys are pursuing careers, you're pursuing relationships, you're putting effort into this. Your walk with God requires effort. You need to pursue it. So look for ways to serve others, for example. And the result of repentance and confession is that we stop running after and chasing after sin and instead we run after and chase after a deeper relationship with God. Now the last point that Paul makes here is enjoy the companionship or fellowship of those who call on the Lord with pure hearts. 
Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 gives us some practical ways of doing this. He says, Let us think of ways to motivate one another towards acts of love and good works. So isn't that cool? Let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works. How much time do we actually spend thinking about how can I help my brother or my sister grow in their walk with Christ? Because if we're all doing that to each other or for each other, I mean, it's awesome. We come to church, we come in fellowship at different times during the week, and we've all been thinking about how can I build up my brother or sister? I've got a verse for them. I've got an encouragement for them. I've got, you know, I want to come alongside and help them in this trial. You know, are they struggling? What can I do to help? So that's how we enjoy our fellowship. We really grow closer to each other if we're actually making an effort to think of each other. Think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good works and let us not let our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. He's very near. Watch the news. Okay. Won't go on about that. Now, what happens if I'm unfit to be used by the Master? That's the next section here. What is one of the most serious consequences of remaining in sin and not being available or fit for the Master's use? And I've got a quote from David Guzik. Along this line, can we not say that when we refuse to make ourselves available to God's service, weak and failing as we are, we in fact rob him of some of his glory. He can glorify himself through a weak vessel like you. You should let him do it. Another quote from Spurgeon. It may not appear so brilliant a thing to bring back a backslider, that's a believer who has wandered away, as to reclaim a harlot or a drunkard, but in the sight of God, it is no small miracle of grace. And to the instrument who has performed it, that's you and me, it shall yield no small comfort. Seek ye, then, my brethren, those who were of us, but have gone from us. Seek ye those who linger still in the congregation, but have disgraced the church, and are put away from us, and rightly so, because we cannot countenance their uncleanness. Seek them with prayers and tears and entreaties, if peradventure God might grant them repentance and that they may be saved. So basically, you heard the joke that Jesus told in the Bible, before you can help someone else at the plank out of your own eye, before you can help someone get the splinter out of theirs. Well, we must first confess and repent of our own sin before we can be of any use in helping others with their sin. And Jesus tells us why in Matthew 7, 1-5. He says, Do not judge others, and you will not be judged. For you will be treated as you treat others. The standard you use in judging is the standard by which you will be judged. Basically, if you show mercy, you receive mercy. If you don't, then you won't. And why worry about a speck in your friend's eye when you have a log in your own or a plank, yeah? How can you think of saying to your friend, let me help you get rid of that speck in your eye when you can't see past the log in your own eye. Hypocrite, first get rid of the log in your own eye, then you will see well enough to deal with the speck in your friend's eye. So, <laughs> Jesus is saying, if we try to help others with a plank in our own eye, meaning we haven't confessed our own sins and repented, then when we try to help others, we will come across as condemning and judgmental. Why? Because we have unconfessed sin. The person who's trying to help someone else who hasn't actually asked God to forgive their own sins is going to want to justify themselves. They're going to be guilty. And that's going to cause them to be harsh and critical of others. They become self-righteous. And they think, well, I'm doing well in this area. And they ignore the area where they're actually sinning. <laughs> and then they want to justify themselves and build themselves up at the expense of the other person and they have a bad attitude towards a person they're trying to help and they can actually end up condemning them instead of showing mercy. Now, when it comes to helping people who have turned away from God, Jesus gives us some really good advice in the next verse, Matthew 7 verse 6. 
Don't waste what is holy on people who are unholy. Don't throw your pearls to pigs. They will trample the pearls and turn and attack you. So this can apply to Christians and non-Christians, but I'm applying it to Christians here. Sometimes a person's caught up in sin and they don't want to repent. So you just stand back and say, all right, I'll pray for you. Now, the next subheading there is, how much do I love someone? And verse 20 says, He who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. And David Guzik says, There is a blessing for the one who loves his brother enough to confront him. And he turns him from the error of his way. He has saved the soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. And what I got from this quote from David Guzik is, The one who loves his brother enough to confront him. Do I love my brother or sister enough to confront them? It's messy. It's painful. They've just come out of the pig pen, so to speak. They stink, sin. They've got a bad attitude. They're not close to the Lord. They're not compassionate, not loving. There's a problem with whatever they're dealing with, whatever sin it might be. We're not going to get any thanks initially. They probably won't even appreciate us helping initially. And it's going to take time. So we need to be there for the long haul. We need to be willing to show patience. But remember, we need to remember our boundaries. The person sitting must want to be helped. They must have, like the prodigal son, come to their senses and have chosen to exit the pig pen. Now we can't do that for someone. That's their responsibility, their decision to make. We can't force them. We can only help those who have truly made up their mind that they want to come back to God. Now, how do we know if someone really wants to come back to God? Well, they'll be willing to confess their sin. They'll be willing to repent. They'll be willing to take concrete steps in moving away from that old life and replacing those things with righteousness, righteous living. They need to demonstrate real change. Also, they need to be willing to become vulnerable by being completely honest and making themselves accountable to others. An experience I had when I was about 21, very inexperienced. Someone said, oh, I've got a problem with sexual sin and I want you to help me. Well, I didn't know what to do. So I just said, okay, I'll try. And he wanted to change, but there's some things, there's parts of his life he didn't want to change. And so he wanted to get rid of the parts of his life, the sin that was really spoiling everything for his family. But he wanted to hold on to some things. Eventually that couldn't help him because he wasn't willing to get rid of everything. You can't hold on to a little bit and expect God to help you with the rest. You've got to be willing to completely repent. It's all or nothing. It's all in or it's all out. So, what happens if I continue to help someone who isn't genuine about changing? Well, <laughs> if I continue to help someone who is not serious about changing, I end up propping them up. I end up being responsible for their behavior, and I basically take the consequences for their sinful behavior. It doesn't help them. It doesn't help me. I end up being frustrated, uh, resentful, and bitter. And for the person who I'm trying to help, they just remain in their sin. I mean, why would they want to change if I'm picking up the pieces after them and paying their bills and cleaning up their messes? We can't help someone who doesn't want to be helped. Their heart is hard. So all we can do is let them be, and that's painful. We have to let them be. And this includes parents helping their kids. Kids don't want to be helped. It's okay, you experience those consequences. So, we must let unrepentant people experience the natural consequences of their sins so they will be driven to come to their senses and repent. Now, in the prodigal son parable or story, did the father run to the pig pen and try and get the son out? No. So he waited until the son had come to his senses till his hard heart was softened and he was ready to repent. So we must follow God's example. But remember that just as Jesus never ceases to pray for us, like if I fell into sin today, Jesus, he's not going to stop praying for me. So when one of us falls into sin, the rest of the body should keep on praying for them, just like Jesus keeps praying for us. 
So what's the overall purpose of the Epistle of James? Well, it's restoration of fellowship with God and man. It's not just getting right with God, but also getting right with each other, the body of Christ. Our relationships in the body of Christ reflect our relationship with Christ. So this is the last verse in the book of James. Why does he finish with this verse? You know, James has been talking about various kinds of sins that affect the body of Christ, and now he lets us know what we should do about them and why. And he says again in verse 20, Let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So this last verse in the book of James tells us what should happen if the rest of the letter is applied. James has been confronting those who have wandered from a living faith, and there's like a living faith and dead faith, living works, dead works. There's a, a theme through the book of James. Living faith is when you're being led by the Spirit, and it produces living works, it's works that God does through you. Dead faith is when you're working by your own power, power of your sinful nature, and they produce dead works, it's dead faith. So the sins that James has talked about includes coveting riches, succumbing or giving into temptation, gossip, an uncontrolled tongue, being unwilling to help those in need, personal favoritism, pride, friendship with the world, condemning our brothers and sisters, living independently of God, or being boastful, grumbling against one another, and making false oaths, which is lying. So it's been a difficult book to study because we're going through lots and lots of different types of sin. But at the same time, it's a purifying path and we've found that as a church it's been a purifying path to take to go down to deal with these things as they come up so these people were still in the church these people with all these problems now how can the church function with all this dysfunction present you know how can the church function when there's gossip and there's there's pride and there's people falling into sin is it going to function can it function? No. Faith without works is dead. That's James' primary message, his focus. Faith without works is dead. So James has taught us that our works and what we do, say or think, reveal our faith, whether it is a living faith or a dead faith. So if we're living the way that James has been describing, we're a dead faith and we shouldn't be fooling ourselves to think that we're a good Christian when we're actually a hypocrite. We mean acting religious, going to church and singing the songs and even having quiet time in the morning. But if we've still got sin in our heart, we're just hypocrites. We're acting. So, wisdom in restoring brothers who have wandered. Forgiven sin has consequences. So, there's no sin that God can't forgive. Well, there is one, and that is our choice not to receive his forgiveness. But, the point I'm making here is that forgiven sin can have consequences. So if someone commits a sexual crime, they'll be on their sex offender list. And this person may never be alone with children again for the rest of their lives. Yet they can still be a part of the body of Christ. So we can't allow that person to be in the Sunday school, but we can allow them to be a part of our body because they've repented and they're now back in fellowship with God and the rest of the body, yeah? Another example, someone who was convicted as a thief would not be selected to look after church finances. <laughs> All right, Because they've got that tendency, that weakness, with stealing money. So it's common sense, but we don't cut them off, but we find roles that they can faithfully serve in. Now, the next key in dealing with sin, dealing with people who have turned away from God and bring them back is let what is in the past stay in the past. And this is something that's important for every relationship, maybe family and friends, whatever. Let's say something happened, the person confessed, they made it right, they repented, and I forgave them, right? But if I bring it up again, what does it show about my heart? Have I forgiven them? No, because I've been holding scratch. I said I forgave them, but I didn't forgive them from the heart. And so if we bring things up, it's a sure sign that we haven't actually forgiven them because we're still holding on to it, even though we might not have realized we were doing it. So we've got to go back to the Lord and say, God, please help me to forgive this person. A quote from Spurgeon to illustrate this. 
I know of men of good standing in the gospel ministry who, ten years ago, fell into sin. And that is thrown in our teeth to this very day. Do you speak to them? You are at once informed. Why? Ten years ago, they did so-and-so. Brethren, Christian men ought to be ashamed of themselves for taking notice of such things so long afterwards. True, we may use more caution in our dealings, but to reproach a fallen brother for what he did so long ago is contrary to the spirit of John, who went after Peter three days after he had denied his master with oaths and curses. So again, if sin is brought up by someone after it has been confessed, forsaken and forgiven, it means it was not really forgiven. So if a person has done something and it does have follow-on consequences, like practical consequences, the key is to have the attitude of acceptance and love. There can be the consequences, but as long as we have genuine forgiveness, have genuine love towards them, genuine acceptance, then they can live with that. God will give them that grace. Now, if we don't, and this is really dangerous, if we don't forgive from the heart, then we have this condemning attitude towards them. We're not really including them. We're still holding a grudge. And listen to what Paul teaches concerning the brother who had initially refused to repent of sexual sin and was therefore excommunicated from the Christian church, but he later repented and he came back into fellowship. So, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6-8. to eight. Most of you opposed him, and that was punishment enough. Now, however, it is time to forgive and comfort him. Otherwise, he may be overcome by discouragement. So I urge you now to reaffirm your love for him. So it's really, really important for us to reaffirm our love to those who have wandered away, but have then confessed and repented of their sins. A couple of important points here. A failure to reaffirm our love and acceptance will often result in the repentant person being overcome by discouragement and then leaving the church. And the saint who has repented will often be struggling to fight off Satan's condemnation. The last thing they need is to be condemned and constantly reminded of their sin by those who are supposed to love and accept and support them. You see? So, from God's point of view, I believe this is a tragedy beyond words, beyond description. It's a heinous crime when the brethren who are supposed to support their own cause the downfall of their own. They cause them to become so discouraged they walk out and never come back. And I just can't imagine, or I can't begin to imagine how grieved and saddened God is when one of his own children is treated so poorly by his own body. So, be careful. God takes forgiveness very seriously. Remember that if we refuse to forgive, then we will not be forgiven. Jesus said in Matthew 6, 14 and 15, If you forgive those who sin against you, your heavenly Father will forgive you. But if you refuse to forgive others, your Father will not forgive your sins. As a Christian, we're not going to lose our salvation if we don't forgive someone, but we will not be experiencing God's forgiveness. That hardness of heart will prevent us from being in a closer relationship with the Lord. So other guidelines and wisdom from other scriptures. So pulling together other scriptures that will help us here. Uh, Galatians 6, 1-3 Brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual or mature, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, considering yourself, lest you also be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So, what can we learn from these? Very quickly, the word trespass there means Sin, blunder, slip, a false step. It's not an intentional sin. It's not something planned. It's just they took their eyes off the Lord and they end up going down this path and they go, oh, I didn't mean to do this. Why did I do this? Overtaken, like a wolf chasing and overtaking a deer. Satan's always trying to cause us to stumble. And sometimes he succeeds when we take our eyes off the Lord. And restore. This word restore means to mend or set a broken bone, and the tense is that we keep on restoring. So brethren, if a man is overtaken in any trespass, you who are spiritual or mature, restore and continue to restore one in a spirit of gentleness. 
The next line there says, considering yourself lest you also be tempted. There's a real danger when we're helping someone in a particular sin that we can caught in the same sin. We can get dragged down. We are exposing ourselves to that sin. And that's why it says that you who are spiritual or mature should restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness. Someone who's not mature in their faith, someone who's weak in their faith, can be caused to stumble by that person's sin. So we need to be careful who we choose to help, who we come alongside, or maybe we get someone else to help us come alongside that person so we don't end up stumbling and falling into that same sin. And it says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You know what that is? The law of Christ? It's to love one another. Simple. That's the law of Christ. It's to love one another. So by sharing each other's burdens, by coming alongside, we are fulfilling the law of Christ in a real practical way. We are loving the other person when we come alongside them and help them to come back to the Lord. And the seventh thing here is verse 3. For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. So we need to humble ourselves to help a struggling brother. Now the next scripture is Ephesians 4, 1-3. Therefore I, a prisoner for serving the Lord, beg you to lead a life worthy of your calling, for you have been called by God. Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Make every effort to keep yourselves united in the Spirit, binding yourselves together with peace. So, what can we learn from these verses in Ephesians? Well, we're called by God to be humble and gentle, patient with each other, and make allowance for each other's faults because of our love for them. And make every effort to maintain the unity of the Spirit, binding ourselves together with peace. Now, this is important because if we don't, our prayers will be hindered. If there's not unity in the body, God will not listen to our prayers. Our prayers will not be effective. As we learned a few weeks ago, the effective prayer of a righteous man avails much, but not the effective prayer of a man who has unconfessed sin or a body of Christ who has unconfessed sin. Yeah. So when we're bringing people back, our goal is for them to mature, to grow, to change, to become stronger. And the church is like a hospital, but it's also like a school. And how we care for people is not just you know, bandaging them up, but we actually strengthen them by teaching them the Word. We want them to not be still committing those old sins. We want them to rise above that and to become strong. We want that bone to be set. And then when the weak person has become strong, they can go and help other people too, you see. Now, what do we do with the willful or intentional sinner? And now we're going to go through the steps of church discipline to finish off with. So imagine that someone in the church who professes to be a Christian. Okay, This is only for those who profess to be a Christian. It's not talking about non-Christians. A non-Christian, someone who doesn't profess to be a Christian, can come in. I'd be happy to have someone who is living with their girlfriend or boyfriend sit here if they weren't saved and just listen. It doesn't bother me, but if a person or a couple is here and they're living together and they profess to be a Christian, I'd be saying, hey, listen, do you know what the Bible says about fornication? And they might say no, and I'd explain it to them. And they go, oh, okay, now are you willing to, as a Christian, are you willing to submit to God? Are you willing to repent? If they say, yeah, I'll help them along that path. If they say, no, well, I'm sorry, but you can't come here because you're out of fellowship with God. And as we'll find out, you're going to have a negative influence on this church. So, 1 Corinthians 5, starting at verse 1, I can hardly believe the report about the sexual immorality going on among you, something that even pagans don't do. I am told that a man in your church is living in sin with his stepmother. You are so proud of yourselves, but you should be mourning in sorrow and shame, and you should remove this man from your fellowship. Going to verse 4. In the name of the Lord Jesus, you must call a meeting of the church. I will be present with you in spirit, and so will the power of our Lord Jesus. Then you must throw this man out and hand him over to Satan, so that his sinful nature will be destroyed, and he himself will be saved 
on the day the Lord returns. You see the motive here? So he will be saved, yeah? Your boasting about this is terrible. And there's a lot of churches who have embraced sin, like homosexual, um, lesbian pastors and, and uh, people in the congregation say, look at us, aren't we so loving? What does Paul say? You're boasting about this is terrible. Don't you realize that this sin is like a little yeast that spreads through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast by removing this wicked person from among you. So there is a different way of dealing with the willful or intentional sinner who is very different from the person who has only overcome or caught up in sin as we read about in Galatians 6. So in the case of willful sin, if we allow it to continue, the prideful attitude, the rebellious attitude toward God will infect and affect the whole congregation much more than if someone just slips up. The proud, unrepentant, hard-hearted and willful sinner must not be allowed to carry on in the fellowship but must be sent away. If they are not willing to receive instruction and choose to persist in their sin, then give them over to Satan. They must be excommunicated from the church. Why? They must experience the consequences of their sin for the sake of their own restoration. And Paul says that they will eventually come to their senses. And again, the prodigal son. The prodigal son was not supported by the father in the sin. And if we go a bit further in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, it shows us that the person will usually come back if they are a true believer in the first place. Now, what can we learn from this passage in 1 Corinthians 5 about how to excommunicate someone? That means to tell them to leave the church and cease all fellowship until they choose to repent. Right? That's what excommunicate means. Tell them to leave the church and cease from all fellowship until they choose to repent. We do it according to Jesus' name and nature. We do it in a loving, merciful, compassionate way. We do it in the presence of the church. And, of course, the church is not just whoever comes on a Sunday morning, as could be anyone, but who are the ones who are the members in some churches or who are the ones who are actively serving, who are the core group? As I said before, call a meeting, yeah? Now, the Bible gives clear guidelines on conflict resolution in the church, Matthew 18, so we just read that quickly. If another believer sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. But if you are unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again, so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. This is accountability. If the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan or corrupt tax collector, which means to push them out. So what are the steps that Jesus laid out here? We go and meet personally with the person who has sinned against you and point out their offense. Now, what usually happens in the church, or can often happen in the church, we go and talk to someone else, right? This person hurt me. I'm really hurt. Would you pray for this person? What's that? It's gossip. It's against scripture. If you've been hurt by someone, you go back to that person and you confront them in love. Yeah. Now, if you feel like you're really intimidated by the person, then go straight to step two, take another person with you and deal with it that way. But still, it's not a public matter. It's between you and them. If it doesn't work with that one-on-one meeting, you take one or two others with you and try again and then make this a mature Christian. If the other person is humble and confesses, you have won your brother back. But if not, you go to step three. So take you to the church, the core group, those who are actively involved in serving or the church members, depending on how your church is run. Not just on a Sunday morning when all the other possibly non-believers are there as well. And if they are still not willing to repent, then we cut off all fellowship with them. We must not even eat with them, 1 Corinthians 5.11. Now, why? Why must the unrepentant brother be cut off from fellowship or excommunicated? A lot of people don't understand this. Many say this is being unloving and judgmental. They say, how can you love someone by kicking them out? If they stay, we can help them. I'm going to give you four reasons for you to think about 
why excommunicating an unrepentant sinner is necessary and is the best thing for them and the church. So, one, we need boundaries. Boundaries are really important. If we keep on helping those who refuse to help themselves, they will become dependent on us and are very unlikely to change. Again, why would they? They get to do whatever they want and we're the ones cleaning up the mess and paying the bills. Therefore, the loving thing to do is to force them to clean up their own mess, to experience their own mess, and they will learn eventually to take responsibility for their own decisions and actions. They'll be sick of living in their own mess, so to speak. Also, we must let them see where the sin leads them and what Satan's true intentions are. See, sin is great. It looks nice. It's pleasant at the start. The temporary pleasures of sin, yeah? But... Where does it lead? Let that person find out. And they will soon see that the sin they love will only lead to a life of pain and misery. And we have to let them find that out for themselves sometimes. And then they will come to their senses and come back. Now, secondly, we need to show them, we need to help them understand that sin separates us from God. If we allow a person who is willfully sinning to remain in fellowship, coming to church each week and treating them like any other believer, then they won't understand that their sin has separated them from God. They will think that everything's okay with their relationship with God because it appears that their relationship with people is okay. You see? But it's not. And sin spreads and hurts others. So the unrepentant believer will negatively influence others in the church and the sin will spread like cancer. One of the purposes of excommunicating the unrepentant believer is to protect the other believers especially the immature or new believers who can easily be caused to stumble. So if you allow sin in the church and you get a new believer come in and they see this happen and they copy, you are responsible. If you're a leader in the church and you allow those things to continue in your church and someone follows that example, you are responsible. Now, sin in the camp or in the church destroys unity. Remember, if there's no unity, then God does not hear your prayers. If the members of the body are no longer agreed or in harmony with each other, walking in sync, so to speak, with Jesus, then Jesus will be no longer present with the church. You can see Matthew 18, 19 and 20 and Revelation 3.20. Remember Revelation 3.20? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. He's outside the church saying, Hello, would anyone like to fellowship with me? You know? The church where Jesus had nothing good to say about them, the Laodicean church, characterizes the majority of today's church, unfortunately. So the church as a body loses its effectiveness and its power to serve. They are no longer a light in a dark world. Now I'm going to read something from Joshua. And it shows that it only took one man's sin to corrupt and weaken the entire nation. So Joshua 7, 1-12. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding their cursed things. Achan, the son of Kami, the son of Delilah, took of the accursed things, so the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Notice, one person sinned, and who's the anger of the Lord burning against? All of them. Okay. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai. Ai. However you say that, I've never known how to say it. So, background they have just defeated Jericho walked around it seven times seventh day walked around seven times and the walls fell down and massive victory you know God was with them they couldn't lose and now there's this tiny little city just up the hill and he said to them go up and spy out the country so the men went up and spied out Ai and they returned to Joshua and said to them don't let all the people go up but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai don't weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. This is a piece of cake. We don't need all the army. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebron and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. What happened to their power? What happened to their boldness? It's gone. It's gone. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. Good model for us to follow here. If there's sin in the camp, 
and we don't know about it, we need to ask God what it is, ask him to reveal it. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us, so that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan? Oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So here's Joshua concerned for God's reputation. So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up! Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. Notice that? Israel has sinned. They didn't even know about this one person who has sinned, but in God's eyes, the whole camp had sinned. The whole church had sinned. Purity is really important in the church. Israel has sinned, and they have also transgressed my covenant, which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things, and have both stolen and deceived, and they have also put it among their own stuff. And here's God revealing to Joshua what's happened. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies, because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you any more, unless you destroy the accursed from among you. So if we don't excommunicate the willful sinner, the person who's refusing to repent, the whole church is going to suffer greatly. We'll go through the motions, we'll still have the worship service, but the power is gone. The boldness is gone. So, conclusion. Just to sum up today's message. Why is God so concerned about those who fall away? Answer. He loves them. Yes, awesome. Okay. It's his deepest heart's desire to bring all people back into relationship with himself and with each other. And that should be our desire too, to keep people in relationship with each other and with God. That should be the most important part of church is relationship. Secondly, we'll only be effective in helping others return to God if we ourselves are walking with God. Thirdly, we are all responsible for helping each other. Fourthly, no one is immune from wandering away. There are no super-Christians. As 1 Corinthians 10 says, Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. We can only help those who are willing to confess and repent. Remember boundaries? Healthy boundaries. Those who continually refuse to repent after going through the steps of churches will need to be excommunicated for their own good and for the good of the church. Sin in the church destroys unity. Our prayers will not be answered. Remember, purity equals power. The prayer of a righteous man avails much. The prayer of a person with or a church with unconfessed sin will not avail much, will not be powerful. The whole point of Jane's epistle is that a dysfunctional or sinning church is a powerless church and confession and genuine repentance characterized by godly sorrow is the only cure. And this applies to marriages, and individual relationships as well. So I'd like us all to stand and we'll read these verses from James chapter 4, 8 to 10. This is our very last study in the book of James. You ready? Therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, and he will lift you up. Father, thank you for this beautiful book, this very hard-hitting epistle, the epistle of James. And we thank you for the work that you've been doing in our fellowship the breaking down of our pride, the um, the exposing of sin, the confessing of sin, the restoration of relationships, the growth that we've seen in people's lives, the closeness of people's relationships getting stronger and closer. And we just thank you for the work that you're doing. And we just pray that you'll continue to help us all to keep on 
examining ourselves and asking you to show us if there's any wicked way in us and to lead us in the way everlasting. And if there is any wicked way, that we would confess it to someone that we trust, a mature brother or sister, and that we would ask them to pray for us. And we can be healed. Our relationship can be healed, both with you and with the other person. And help us, Lord, to when someone grieves us or offends us, to go to that person, to love them enough to confront them of that sin, and so that relationship can be healed and not left to cause future harm and bitterness and disunity in the church. So we just pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.